Welcome to Startup Dads, a podcast about the highs and lows of building a business and raising a family at the same time. For more information about the topics we cover on the podcast and other Startup Dads related content, you can follow us on Twitter at Startup Dads Pod. I'm Amrit, co-founder of Hyper Exponential, a tech startup that I co-founded in 2017. It's grown from a two-person team working out of my kitchen to a profitable business with several large clients and more than 20 team members across London and Europe. I'm also dad to Evie, my first child, who was born last December. So welcome to this week's episode of Startup Dads. I'm delighted to welcome Stephen Britton, the director and co-founder of the InsureTech Gateway. Stephen, can you tell us a little bit about what makes you a startup dad? Well, the more pressing side of it is the dad bit, because I became a dad for the first time six weeks ago. The listeners can't see that I'm wearing my only jumper without milk on the shoulder. And I guess my startup credentials are, um, I've been a founder, and I've more recently, in the last six, seven years, I became first a VC and then started an incubator. So I'm very used to the very early stage startup journey. Amrit and I have been discussing about the various parallels and pains we go through and the words that uh, that I've used in for years as metaphors in talking to startups. Oh, wow, I'm actually doing it for real now. <laughs> That's definitely a feeling that you can't replicate when you have your first child. I will never forget when Evie was born and they gave her to me. I was like, oh, boy, I can't give this back now. There's no support service. This is it. We're in. <laughs> yes, I've, I've had enough now. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Exactly. You can't take the midwives home with you. <laughs> so, Stephen, uh, you've taken a very unusual journey, I think, and there have been some unexpected transitions along the way. So, in my experience, both as a dad and founder, these points of transition are the bits that are really important in your life. So, can you tell us a little bit about how you got here and the lessons you've learned along the way? I guess most simplistically, I've, I've had three key phases, three trimesters. We'll stay with the, the metaphors. <laughs> But uh, yeah, my first trimester was being a sort of an engineer. So I was uh, quite used to being the technical guy, the the technical expert, the CTO. I became an expert in product design. I was the person that could visualize an idea and then get on a plane to a factory in the Far East and make it, walk into a dev studio and make a software piece. And and that journey from studying customers all the way through to um, to something being made I stopped thinking solution first, and I um, started thinking that there was a process involved. The process started with the customer. Yeah, so I, I kind of, I guess I became a designer and went that the design process. And, uh, and that is the domain expertise, is the ability to see the need in others and get it all the way to something that you can make. So that is my, I guess, the main part of my career with that domain is being a, a designer. And my, my third trimester has been stepping out of that space now and, uh, and to become a VC. And as you rightly say, the um, transition was the is more of the interesting bit because you don't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to be a VC. My transition point from product designer to VC was I launched my own product business. I had an idea. I studied it hard. I knew how to engineer it. And I launched it. And along the way, that transition was really about the new people I met. And I reframed myself in a bigger picture, the picture of venture. I thought my universe was everything I knew, which was to be a product designer and maker. And then I realized that there was another environment for me to understand, which is how do I convince you know, the, the investors, the, both the private investors and the large-scale investors to back me. I met investors. Some invested in me. I met VCs. Some invested in me. 
And I, I've managed to make that transition, I guess, by just doing it long enough and meeting enough people. So I've, I walked into a VC environment as a person that had been over the hill and back down again. In, uh, it, it's an, in an environment where a lot of VCs are kind of uh, straight into VC with sort of business and economics backgrounds. I had the background of somebody who just, I just went the long way around, I guess. I think it's always very interesting when you meet VCs from a slightly unusual background like yours, because I think when you're looking for investors, you always want to get a really broad range of skills. So, you know, from that point of view, just thinking a little bit about your unusual background, how on earth did you end up in insurance from design? So fundamentally, I met some people I regarded very highly who had a different skill set. And I guess that's part of that transition point, isn't it, where you where I stopped looking for people like myself and I started to look for something complementary. Mm. And I'd been surrounded by all these kind of, you know, we sitting around coffee bars talking about product design in the, in the latest trainers types for a long time. And then I met uh, Robert Lumley, who co-founded the InsureTech Gateway together. He was just a really stand-up guy and he had a similar long-term view on how to... We basically had a conversation that an hour later was, why don't we just reinvent this bloody industry? Because it's not mm-hmm. going to do it itself. Absolutely. Rather than... I've got an idea, should we try and make something? And I think when you have a a partnership that starts with that sort of vision already by the time you finish your first coffee, although it's probably a beer now I look back, then you start to think about, you know, that it's the art of the possible. And so I think there was a combination there of a personality fit and a respect for each other's domains. What he brought for me was was a sector that was ripe for disruption and that he had access to many places that, that we might need to uh, make it work. I, I had method and process and frameworks for innovating in products. And one thing that I think that a lot of people in insurance didn't understand when I started is that insurance policies are kind of really amateur products in my world. Like they are products. Insurance policies yeah. are products, just the same as um, chairs and tables are products. And you get really bad products, really bad tables, and you get really awesome tables. And I was able to show them the difference between a bad table and an awesome table. And we were able to turn that conversation into, so what would be an, an awesome insurance solution? Which doesn't sound like the best party to be invited to. But when you add the new analytics, IoT, you know, Internet of Things, um, sensors, big data solutions, analytics, the kind of people that are now surrounding us when you start an incubator. And then you're not talking about the insurance that everybody would preconceive. You know, I'm sure yeah. most of you are listening will listen to this and go, insurance, I still don't get it. What, fast insurance? I'm talking about building products that can prevent you hurting yourself in the first place, that can be the first emergency service that help you, that can find ways of dividing your risk up between a 1,000 people on the blockchain that will make sure you pay pennies and not hundreds of pounds. Like, it was going back to the fundamentals of protection when you allow all of that. When the insurance guys let me in, which Robert made sure they did, we were able to start a new conversation that just says, how are we going to protect people in the future? Now we've got all this amazing technology and we've got the backbone of an insurance market. It almost feels like, you know, insurance is the vehicle, really. You've got a slightly different mission to solve and insurance is the way to go about it. Insurance used to be, how do we find a way to protect ourselves when the worst thing happens? And I think we've all lost touch with that. But actually, it's um, here's an arrangement where we all look after each other. Yeah, that's a that's a fundamental model of insurance. It just got a bit lost in all those dirty grey buildings in East London. 
Yeah. And when you work with your founders now, do they frame themselves as insurance companies in the way they go about their business? Or are they actually, are they a little, little bit more focused on the mission? Of, as you've said, some of those really quite interesting problems to solve. An example I use at HX is people often think that we're an insurance insurance tech startup, whereas actually we're much more solving a very complex technical problem. And that problem, when solved, makes many people in to start with insurance's life much easier. But our mission and what we're energized by, you know, is not just the end. It's the same way that if you're an insure tech founder, you're not necessarily energized by building the greatest insurance product. You're energized by what that enables. Absolutely. The interesting thing about having an insurance expertise in a venture firm is that you don't need the founders who come to you to be insurance people. You need them to have an awesome problem to solve and to know how to solve it. And then you can bring the insurance technicalities to that. A bit like having a tech build capability that a lot of people will be familiar with. Insurance products need to be built. And even the language in the insurance market is manufacturer and all those kind of old-fashioned words. So when someone walks in the door and says, the problem with my, with my family life is that we live near a river and um, every five years it floods and my dad lost his business. Why is my dad unprotected? Why can't he buy insurance? It seems so unfair. I need to solve for this problem. And the key word in that is unprotected. He doesn't say, I need a fast policy. He says, can you help me protect these people? And with that comes a passion and an insight of a group who might be outliers to an insurance market, but we can find a way to target them, be fair with the way we treat them. And out of that springs a business. And in fact, it has sprung a business. There's a business called Flood Flash, which is based on that founder story, where he, you do put an, a device, an IoT, a sensor on the wall of a, of a building you know, that might be historically regarded as being too close to the water, but actually, technically, it's 30 feet in the air and it's fine. And we're now enabling all those businesses to get insurance and be protected. So in the event it does happen, they don't go bust. Because that's yeah. what happens to small businesses when the floods come, they go bust. It's definitely a, a very key distinction between the problems that the company, an insurance company or a company wants to solve and the problem its clients have. Mm-hmm. It's just so important that those two things are the same thing. It's interesting to the to the point I made earlier about client first, customer first. What they didn't say was um, an insurance company has asked me to build a piece of software. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What they said was my dad and my, people like my dad, you know, are building businesses like this and we need to solve for this. No, absolutely. You know, taking us down a slightly different path without thinking about the, the companies, thinking a little bit about growth. So I think you've got a really insightful perspective on growth and kind of how you foster development in your founders. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? I, I didn't realise it was fascinating. And maybe you're, you know, it's just something that we're all learning along the way, which is basically how to be a good incubator. That's fun- fundamentally it. And with a product design background, it means that I absolutely started this founder first. The founders were the client, in effect, yeah. the customer. And I was able to put myself in their shoes to an extent and think, um, what is it I would need to get an idea off the ground? And certainly in the context of a regulated space like insurance, there's an awful lot you need to get things off the ground. So it gave me a chance to concentrate on that with that environment. And um, we were talking about the parallels with being a father. I was thinking that there is fundamentally a type of person that gets us, the right kind of DNA for that environment. Because many founders say, I don't need help, I just need money. Mm. There's no such thing as an incubator. I thought an incubator was just a word used by people that are trying to get a better deal out of me for their money. I believe you need to really deserve your role as incubator. You know, we spent a year and a half building the incubator before we took the first group in. 
but sorry, back to the point of um, the nurturing of that. We needed we have to have the right DNA, and also we recognise that they're non-insurance people. We needed to provide them an, lot, an awful lot of support. So there really is a gestation, you know, early phase to this, where we are helping them define what they need to grow into. And we also need to understand that they can adapt because a brilliant tech founder will walk in the door with, you know, like a five-star general with every award in the sun and like no one tells them what they don't know. Mm. You know, and you need a certain type who's not only brilliant, but has also got their ears open and eyes open to something new. And it's, it is really new. Yeah. So there is that continual need for learning. As somebody who's trying to nurture early stage people with ideas, you desperately want them to be bright and you desperately want them to be le- uh, still in, a, in high peak learning because you need them learning. And you need them to be very adaptable because very soon their super tech know-how isn't the most important thing that they need. The thing they need next is going to be distributions expertise. And they're going to need to find someone as good as themselves in the space of distribution or in the space of, of sales or in the space of many other things that businesses go through. So I, I, I spend a lot of time in that early phase trying to work out whether they've got the right DNA for the journey. Because many really good founders should just go and do it themselves. And then some, some founders just want a VC. They just need just add money because they've got a gap. And others really need nurturing through a complex path. And I tend to both try to attract and support those that are trying to navigate quite a complex path. You just touched on a really important point, again, a personal re- reflection of mine, that the path is never the path you think it's going to be. Right. And one of the most valuable things I, you know, I've learned as a founder, like many incredibly naive founders who come in and see a very clear problem. You know, I came from industry. I'm solving a problem. I used to be one of my users. Right. I'm solving a problem that um, I could very clearly see from the other side of the table. But you realize that actually building a business is not just about solving that problem and actually being able to realize what other skills you need to learn to navigate that very complex path is so critical. How do you go about in your founders assessing their kind of ability, their self self reflection, and their ability to go? Oh, yeah, this is much bigger than just you know what I think it is. It's a big topic, but I guess maybe one of the traits that I look for is a clear, really, really clear identification of the problem. You know, to get a group that can obsess on the problem rather than the solution, for me, is you know like the most significant mm. thing. I might see a pitch, and someone will tell me you know, to the seventh dimension about their tech solution. Yeah. But they've only gone to the first dimension about the problem they're solving. And I, I believe a business that is agile and able to pivot and shape into whatever is required to survive walks in the door with seven dimensions of the problem and one dimension of the solution. That's great. So the first feedback I would normally give is, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt here. Can you go back and put at least two more dimensions on the the need and the and how you're going to get to them and how you get what's the intervention point to actually break into these people's lives so you can even be there and then we'll look at the economics because you've not really thought about it all and I'd be surprised I think you're being optimistic and please tell us less about the technology because it's exhausted us you've taken the back off we have a joke they take the they took the back off the television we just wanted to know what was on tv in that first couple of meetings it's definitely a very very valuable insight to any founder particularly in the early stage where it's very easy to get into a navel gazing loop right because when you're working really hard on something you can become much more introspective than you need to be 
I think that some of the early stage, early investment sector has, is to blame because I think there's been an obsession of, you know, what do I need to, sh- to show? Mm. I must bring an MVP and I must bring a business plan. And my definition of an, MV- of an MVP is not your definition of an MVP. You know, I don't want to see a nearly production ready prototype that does the whole job. I just want to see the MVP I want to see is that there's traction on the smallest idea. Like I yeah. did this thing with an Excel spreadsheet and I sent it out to 100 people and 50 people said, yes, that's an MVP. Not look at this seven dimensional thing I've built that all you need to do is add money and we could make a billion pounds out of it. You think, are you insane? That's like I've built a laser to shoot the moon. I just need you to pay for the electricity. It's like yeah. it doesn't. It's it's like mad inventor kind of language to me. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose thinking about your role now. So you know you run a a, a platform like the InsureTech Gateway. You know your job is to spend a lot of time thinking about how you can coach and support your portfolio. But what about you? Can you talk to me a little bit about how you learn and grow from the process? Because I think. The most valuable people in my sphere from the investment and advisory side are people who are curious and interested to learn. How do you do that? How do you personally kind of foster your own development? I've got lots of answers to the question. But the first thing that sprung to mind is, um, and it sprung up in the way you introduced where I am now, because I don't I don't run the platform, actually. I think one of the interesting things is that I designed the platform. I designed the beginning of a platform. And another group of people came in and then engineered it in a way that I, I couldn't have done at all. But I, I gave it the founder-first approach, structure, and the way we would approach it. And then I let others do it. So one of the reasons I do many other things is because I let go. I, yeah. I never sought the title, this is Stephen, the head of, he runs this. Mm. I don't. I'm just incredibly lucky that a few people engaged in what I was trying to do who are a lot better at operationalizing and building things than I am and they got on with it and occasionally when they need me I might come in and uh, try and work out some of the design issues along the way but it's not run by me so I built in my own redundancy to be honest it was bit by accident at the beginning and then what that gave me in this phase of my career I gave myself permission and this same team gives me the permission to look ahead and I look ahead as to what we need to build next and what we might need to design next. And in doing so, I've fired my curiosity and my willingness to say, I'm exploring this this week. I'm exploring a parallel business in this country this week. I'm exploring these kind of technology founders who are different to what we've done before this week. I'm exploring, so I'm running lots of experiments now. So fundamentally, I, um, I had to let go with my need to define myself by how many people work for me or my management role or anything. I don't use that language anymore. And that was a transition in itself. In order to do that, I had to get people who I admired and were willing to let me do it, by the way, because it's a two-way street. But I've now got myself in a place where I'm allowed to explore where we're going next because maybe people around me recognise that when you're building something that's growing, somebody has to be designing the growth path, navigating. Yeah. You know, I'm not the railroad builder, but I just work out where the next mountain is we've got to get round. There's that phrase, in order to grow, you've got to let go. Yeah, you'll only ever be what you were before. I'm not, I'm not this and that. It's like, I was this, now I'm this. Did that come naturally to you? Just asking kind of from a personal point of view. That's something that I know in my job. Yeah, I need to do. And it's something that 
when you've been involved, you know, from the early stage of business, you know, my first few weeks at HX or first few months at HX, I was the front end engineer. As we've grown, you know, large parts of my role, specialism and expertise is coming in to replace it. Um, it's not something that's um, necessarily easy to do, though. But you you can't, you know, without uh, letting things go, you can't plot the path going forward. Yeah. There are a couple of different ways I could try and answer the question. I think change is, is continually pain and painful, and maybe I'm attracted to that pain of change always. Mm-hmm. I think one of the hardest things to be when you've had success, hardest thing to do is to be a learner again. It's yeah. really, really hard. I took up tennis in lockdown, haven't played for 20 years, and it was humiliating the first month. It was just humiliating. I mean, I turned up thinking, I remembered how to play tennis, but I turned up I got absolutely thrashed. But, you know, you know, a couple of months later, I'm getting a few points and it takes that kind of commitment. And I think if you're top of your field and you enjoy having the, the, you know, the accolades of being the senior technical person, it's quite hard to let that go and say, I'm the junior business development person now. It's not something culturally we're used to doing. Um, and I think one of the things that helped me do it was that I moved into a space like insurance or insure, not really insurance, it's insure tech, which I think is quite a different feel. But yes. um, by moving into that space, I just had to accept that I was a total amateur. And in being the total amateur, I couldn't be the technical lead. I just had no technical voice at all. But what I could be is a designer again with a design process. Mm. I could just, I could manage the thinking process of a bunch of technical people that I don't, I mean, I've got a postgraduate degree in mechanical engineering and, and I know how to make lots of things. But when it came to that space, I was a total amateur. So I just had to be the design process lead, the guide, the coach, the facilitator, and accept I'm no longer the technical guy. So I think maybe the painful bit and the the most um, binary way of doing it is to step out into another sector where you don't have, yeah. you, don't, you can't fall back on your old confidence and you realise you've got other traits and skills that will get you there. You're absolutely right. And, you know, at a rapidly growing business, there's more of those than ever can be done in one go. And I think that's such a really good reframing yeah. of it, right, to think about what, what needs to happen next, actually. We do live in a phenomenal time where you can walk out of college and change your LinkedIn profile to CEO. Yeah. I mean, that's just absurd, isn't it? Our parents just think it's hilarious, don't they? And that yeah. generation and generation before it is like, you mean you didn't have to get a degree to do that? You didn't have to stop or... You know, we can just reinvent ourselves. It's it's a time when everything's been reframed, and you know, one minute you're an HR executive, next thing you're um, you're the head of talent. Next thing you know, you're building a a community with a half a million pound of angel fundraising, and and you're a TV personality three years later. That all happens in the startup journey, yeah. By people who know how to let go of a few things they really needed to hold on to, and were thrilled by the the new space and the opportunity to both reframe their own skill set and where they were going. I think your observation that successful founders enjoy the pain, whether or not they know it, is something that I think is a really yeah. powerful observation. It's something I see in founders I really admire, people I look at, you know, and you can see from the way they act and the way they're going about what needs to be done next. Endurance people. Yeah, indeed. Endurance. When you talk to an endurance athlete or a runner or a, whatever, you know, an adventurer, you tell them, so you hang on a second, you're going to wear a backpack and you're going to walk on your own for four months and they've got a grin from ear to ear. Yeah. They don't grimace like most people would. You know, it's a certain, there's a certain sad, sadism to the whole thing, isn't there? Yeah, no, absolutely. 
well, Stephen, we've talked a lot about startups, but we've not had the chance to talk that much about the, the dad bit. You know, the question I like to ask every guest is, you know, you've, you've really been through the transition all the way through the startup uh, life cycle. What's the biggest lesson you've learned from your journey in entrepreneurship that you want to pass off to your child? Um, the most obvious one for me is to find people who are different from yourself and that you just find something to like about them and respect. Because it's a bloody long journey, life. And it certainly is when you have that kind of journeyman's entrepreneurial, you know, bent. Your, your idea is never as good as the next one. Every time I've started a business and finished it, it's days, not months, before I'm wanting to start again. And, and the, the fundamental thing that will drive me going forward, and I wish I'd learned it earlier, is you just got to find the right people to start the journey with. And don't get dazzled by people trying to find another word than bullshit in their own abilities and what they can do. Make your own judgments on it. You know, don't worry too much about what you're going to do. Just find great people you like hanging around with and you'll work it out. And that's the other incubation job I've got to work out now. Yes, indeed. Again, it's a cliche, but you're the aggregate of the people you keep closest to you. Yeah, absolutely. But they also say that you're only as good as the people that work for you. And I think there's a really modern expression on that, which is that you're only as good as the people that you enable. This is the first time in my life I've seen progress like this. And the secret to it all is that I've found the best people to support. My own team, I mean, I frankly, I feel I work for them, and I mean that most genuinely. I ask what they need, and they're really good at explaining what their challenges are and their problems are, and I just try and move things out of the way for them. It's much more fun to uh, just remove blocks for people and watch how fast things can really be done. Thinking about your your children, one of the best things I think you can do is try and minimise the blocks to allow them to pursue the things that they love and go as fast as they can. Yes, I'm sorry. I, I realised how I, I lost the softness of talking about my own child then. I made it sound like I was talking about my firm because I was <laughs> visualising my team. It's, it's, it's funny to bring my personal life into this conversation, but I guess it's, and it's so early for me in the journey. Mm. But I definitely have a sense of... Um, making them aware that the blocks just aren't as big as they look like from the front. I mean, I think that's always going to be helpful, isn't it? I'm sure I'll be starting with little orange and red and green square ones on the carpet soon. And yeah. that is where the metaphor will begin. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Well, that is a wonderful way to wrap up the episode, I think. Stephen, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Amrit. It's a nice topic. I think it's a really nice uh, way of engaging with the more personal parts of the journey. Thank you. But before we, we wrap up, each episode, we'd like to close with our regular feature, Startup Shoutouts. It's our non-sponsored section where we call out startups, founders or early stage businesses that we think have caught our eye and deserve a bit of free promotion. Startup Shoutouts. Who would you like to give your Startup Shoutout today? I have a delicate position, as you know, because we back 19 startups at the moment. So to single one out is a really delicate thing to do. That said... For a, a reason which is quite close to me, I will. Um, but the group I want to shout to is um, Guardhog. They are an insure tech looking at the um, short term letting, I mean, the kind of Airbnb booking.com space. And the reason I want to shout out to them, one being that they've managed to be fathers amongst this all this incredible ch challenge. But they were, of all our businesses, they've been under the greatest pressure through the pandemic. Most of our businesses can, can weather you know, the R&D phase, while the rest of the market goes quiet, while sales and deal generation is slowed down. 
that they were absolutely inextricably linked to an industry that just went 90% off at the flick of a switch. And it's a story about leadership. I've commended them ever since because they went to their team and just said, we've just lost 98% of the market and we're on a burn rate for the next six months. We, we, we're looking at a wall of a block. And they turned to a team of 14, 15 people and said, this is where we are. I'm afraid we're going to have to furlough. We're going to have to do all this. And the team unanimously agreed to take a shareholding, their own idea, to keep the business going. And then all showed up for work on the Monday afterwards and said, let's keep going. This is important. And it makes me realize that I can't think of an insurance company that would tell me that that happened for them. And that's the difference between InsureTech, you find a problem to solve, a group of people who have got passion behind their business, but also that relationship between that first tier of leaders and their young guys who have managed to get that kind of loyalty from their business. So I wanted to um, congratulate them for that moment. That's fantastic. You know, when I hear uh, stories of kind of that mission-driven resilience at times like this, because it's been a difficult time, irrespective yeah. of how well you're doing, I think there are very few startups that haven't been affected or businesses or people by the pandemic. That's proper resilience, isn't it? When your entire team just evolves and reshapes to try and make survival happen. And not many found, not many top, you know, the top founders can say that and no. they can tell you how they've increased their burn. But nothing's as agile as that. No, that's great. Well, good on you, God Hog. And best of luck when you come through the other side. Yeah, that's absolutely great. Well, my startup shout out this week is Otter. Otter helps job seekers find roles at the world's most innovative companies, including HX. Yeah, Otter is a job posting service. Been just really impressed with the way they've engineered the platform, how easy it is to use. Tech recruitment is the hardest thing in technology, something that, you know, no one tells you, particularly if you're coming from the other side into building a technology firm that maybe that's life. Maybe everyone tells you and I didn't listen. So I deserve what I get. <laughs> but we've been really impressed with Otter. It's a great service. Well done, Otter. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up? I am very keen to meet uh, non-insurance people who understand that there is a protection gap in a space, can find a great data set and will come and see us and we'll help them shape it into a long-term sustainable business. And from this interview, you probably have a sense of the kind of personalities we enjoy. And, um, you know, people who have got, a, a, as you rightly articulated earlier, have got the passion to solve a problem. Our doors are open. So it's a shout out to my team too. Well, Stephen, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. That was fantastic. We will put some links and information about how people find out a little bit more about you uh, and InsureTech Gateway in the show notes. Many thanks to today's guest. You'll find links to them and their work in the show notes. To join our community of parent founders, head over to the Startup Dads Facebook group. 